Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. That's on page 684 in most of the seat Bibles, if you're using those. Matthew 5, 21 to 26. The late Chuck Colson, uh, who was a well-known speaker and author, recounted the story of the trial of Adolf Eichmann. I may have shared this with you before. Eichmann was the Nazi responsible in large part for the engineering of the Holocaust. And one of the witnesses at Eichmann's trial was a Jewish man named Yechiel Dinor. And Colson describes how that day Dinor entered the courtroom and stared at the man behind the bulletproof glass, the man who had presided over the slaughter of millions. And the court was hushed as this victim confronted a butcher. And then suddenly, Dinor began to sob and he collapsed to the floor. Not out of anger or bitterness, as he explained later in an interview, what struck him at that instant was the terrifying realization that, as he said, I was afraid about myself. I saw that I was capable to do this exactly like he. The reporter interviewing Diener understood. He, He wrote, how was it possible for a man to act as Eichmann added, or acted? He asked, was he a monster? Was he a madman? Or was he perhaps something even more terrifying? Was he normal? Eichmann, he concluded, is in all of us. And Jesus agrees. And it's that sober topic which Jesus broaches with us in today's scripture. Back in the eight. Uh, 1980s, there was an alternative rock group called the Smiths, and they had an album called Meat is Murder. And I think we could title Jesus' message to us this morning, Mad is Murder, too. You see, we hear about the criminal down at Sing Sing doing life for homicide, and subconsciously, we almost can't help but think, I'm better than him. After all, I haven't killed anyone or anything. But Jesus says, look again. Look harder into your own heart. There is murder in your heart, too. After all, you get mad at people, don't you? You likely sometimes call them names, maybe out loud, maybe under your breath, maybe only when you're driving. And then you go on with your worship and you go on with your life so callously indifferent to those people who you haven't done everything in your power to make things right with. And if so, Jesus tells us, then there is murder in your heart and in my heart too. And we think, whoa, Jesus, lighten up. I mean, lay off. Jesus' words here are hard to take and hard to believe, right? Well, to understand what Jesus is saying here and to understand why he's saying it, we're going to have to take some time to try to get into his headspace as a Jew thoroughly steeped in the Old Testament, his scriptures. And to help us get there, let me start by telling you an old Jewish story. It's about a rabbi named Simon ben Eleazar. And he was coming home from his master's house one night where he learned. And he was feeling pretty good about himself and what they had been discussing. He was feeling good about his scholarship, about his sophistication, about his goodness. And just then, his positive mood was ruined when who should come down the street the other way and greet him? Oh no, a man that the rabbi really disliked, who really grated on him. 
Well, the rabbi did not return the greeting of the other man, but said instead, you racha, how ugly you are. Are all the men in your town as ugly as you? That, the passerby said, I do not know. Go and tell the maker who created me how ugly is the creature he has made. In his quick-witted response to the rabbi, the, the passerby nails right on its head what the root of murder is. Murder is an attack on the creator and his handiwork. And Jesus says, anger and harsh words are too. Because that other person, however disagreeable or unlikable or maddening, is made in the very image of God. And to speak against the image is to speak against the one whom the image represents. In in Bible times, when a ruler, if we can put the first slide up, when a ruler put his, that's Alexander the Great, put his image around his realm, it it was to remind the inhabitants of who their king was, who was in charge, who deserved the, the glory and the obedience. And when someone spoke against that statue, that image, or defaced it in some way, they were held responsible just as if they'd done it to the ruler's face. And brothers and sisters, every human being on this earth is such an image, fearfully and wonderfully made by the Creator, placed in the creation to remind us who the ruler is, who deserves the honor, and who deserves the obedience. And so there's a sanctity about every human life because we each reflect the likeness of God. And so a sin against a fellow human being is a sin against God. To murder another is to strike out at God. And Jesus says this is just as true when we murder them with our thoughts, in our heart, or with our words. Mad is murder. Mean is murder too. Less violent, sure, but they are all still offenses against God's image. And because they're offenses against God's image, they're offenses against God as well. You see, if you're caught attacking the king's statue, it doesn't matter if you smash the whole thing to pieces or you just spit on it or or speak against it. All of those acts are still rebellious affronts to the king who the image represents. And therefore, they all carry a similar penalty. Are you following me? Okay, so that background begins to explain why Jesus speaks in such strong terms about how we treat others. Now let's look at it from a somewhat different angle. Have you ever wanted to murder someone? Yeah. I heard another pastor once say, I've never considered divorcing my wife. Murdering her maybe, but not divorcing her. And it was supposed to be a joke, right? But, but there's some truth in it, isn't there, for all of us. There's that person in our lives. There, there are certain times, there are certain people who we just want to, to shut out, to, to freeze out, to cut off from our lives. And murder is the ultimate way to do that. It, it's, it's a way of ultimately deleting that person from our life. But some of us don't have the guts or the means, or the inclination to actually murder someone. So we find other ways to erase them. Emotionally, we might build walls against them in our hearts, a wall of anger, or bitterness, or resentment. We may avoid the person or ignore them. 
We may not speak to them or we might speak badly to them or about them. Or maybe we don't hate them so much that we want to erase them. Maybe we just dislike them and so we're content to make them pay and to cause them some pain. So we criticize them. We, we talk about them, as I said, behind their backs, turning other people against them too. Or, or maybe we're passive-aggressive and we find some subtle ways to get back or to get even. All of these approaches, Jesus says, are, are about the same thing. They're different gradations of the same thing. They're all attacks on God's image. They're all about, excuse me, hurting that person, pushing them away so we don't have to deal with them anymore. And Jesus tells us in the strongest possible terms that this kind of behavior and attitude is antithetical to the kingdom he has come to bring. It's absolutely not acceptable among his followers. And that people who live this way are bound for ultimate punishment in the fires of hell. Well, now that Jesus has our attention, let's look at the passage more closely. And there are some nuances to it, so let's walk through it. I don't think Jesus is talking about staying away from someone who's victimizing you. He's talking about something else here. Let's see if we can see what it is. Jesus starts in verse 21 by reminding us of what we already know. God said to the people long ago through the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder. Which reminds me of of a joke. uh, A Sunday school teacher was discussing the Ten Commandments with her class of five and six-year-olds and was explaining the commandment to honor your father and mother. And then she asked, and is there a commandment which teaches us how we treat our brothers and sisters? And without missing a beat, one little boy answered, thou shalt not murder. (laughs) That boy actually understood what Jesus is teaching here maybe better than he realized. Anyway, anyone who did murder, the Old Testament law said, would be subject to judgment. In ancient Israel, that, that judgment would be the judgment of a local court in your town, or in your village. The Old Testament law demanded that anyone convicted of murder by such a court should be given the death penalty, stoned right there by the village. That's what subject to judgment meant in that case. But, Jesus says, I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Now, immediately, this statement raises some questions. First off, Jesus, isn't anger just an emotion? Doesn't your word say elsewhere in Ephesians, be angry and do not sin? I thought it wasn't the anger that was a problem, but what you did in your anger. And isn't some anger righteous anger? In fact, Jesus, didn't you get angry from time to time? Well, some early scribes recognizing these valid problems evidently tried to solve them by adding the phrase without cause in the text. Anyone who is angry with his brother or sister without cause. Some of you might have that in your Bibles. If you have the King James, they have that variation. But the better solution seems to be to realize that the word for anger here is in the continuous tense, ongoing anger. And in Greek, there are two words for anger, and the one Jesus uses here refers not so much to the emotion of anger, which we all feel, but to the expression of it. In other words, Jesus isn't talking about when you first feel angry towards someone. He's talking about when we stay angry, when we nurse a grudge, 
when we let that anger settle in to our hearts and determine the way we view and treat that person. It's not the flame of anger we first feel towards someone when they tick us off. Rather, it's our decision to protect that flame and to nurture it, to keep its fire burning. That kind of anger, Jesus is saying, makes us subject to judgment. Now, what kind of judgment does Jesus have in mind here? Does it mean that if I carry a grudge against you, the the local court should try and convict me and stone me to death for murder? No, it's even worse than that. Because human courts may be competent to judge outward actions like murder, but they'd have a really hard time judging what's in my heart, right? And so Jesus seems to be moving our case to a higher court. And this becomes clearer in the rest of verse 22. This verse is is tricky, so let's work through it carefully. But I tell you, Jesus continues, that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, which basically means bonehead or idiot, is answerable to the court, or some of your translations say the Sanhedrin. And anyone who says, you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Let me point out two details in this verse here because they're both important so that we don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying. First, Jesus says, if you say raka to someone, bonehead, idiot, you're answerable to the court or the Sanhedrin. Probably Jesus doesn't mean the human court. Do you know why? Because as far as we know, saying raka to someone was not illegal in Jesus' day. It wouldn't land you in court, especially the Sanhedrin didn't have time for such trivial cases. So probably Jesus is talking about God's court, the heavenly Sanhedrin. Second, notice the and before anyone who says you're a fool or says you fool. That's the new NIV I'm reading. The older NIV is, uh, translation is slightly different. The older one says, if you say raka, you go to court, but if you say you fool, you go to hell. So is it and or but? That little Greek word being translated there can mean either one. And and many scholars these days think it should be translated and, which is reflected in the newer NIV. Because trying to figure out why fool is, is a worse insult than raka seems to miss the point of what Jesus is saying. Because raka and fool were were similar put-downs in Jesus' day. One was not particularly worse than the other in the way it hit people when you said it to them. Jesus probably isn't contrasting the two, but rather what Jesus seems to be doing here is giving several examples and upping the ante each time in terms of the punishment, building to a rhetorical crescendo. So listen to it that way. If you nurse a grudge against someone, you'll be subject to judgment. If you call them stupid, you'll be answerable to God's court in heaven. And finally, if you call them you fool, you're in danger of the fire of hell. Wow, right? So what's Jesus saying here? He seems to be saying, when you stay angry with another person, the vast majority of the time, you are having murderous thoughts, aren't you? Not that you want to literally kill them, but in your anger, Jesus says, you're looking at that sacred, beautiful creation of mine, that wonderful reflection of God, 
Granted, it's fallen, it's tainted, it's tarnished, and that's what's probably ticking you off. But you want to strike out at him or her, or you want to remove that person somehow from your life, right? And why? Often because you're selfish, and you value yourself more highly than that other person or, or the God whom they reflect. Maybe they hurt you. Maybe they took something very precious to you. Maybe they cavalierly disregarded your needs or your feelings or your rights. Maybe they made you look bad. Maybe they ruined your day. Maybe they broke your heart. And, and, and now you're, you're more than mad at their action, the thing they did. You're mad at them, and now you want to shut them out or get them back. Have you lost all perspective, Jesus is urging us? You should stand in awe of that person. They're made in the image of God. How dare you attack them with your thoughts or with your words? Don't you realize you're actually attacking an image that God has made? And no, of course, no human court is fit to try or judge these inner feelings and thoughts that you have. But God is, and God will. William Barclay puts it this way. He's, he's commenting on um, Raka and you fool, calling someone those things, especially to others in a way that is, is downgrading them, demeaning them, damaging their reputation. He says, so then, Jesus insists that the gravest thing of all in your anger or hatred is to destroy a man's or woman's reputation and to take their good name away. No punishment is too severe for the malicious talebearer or the gossip over the teacups who murders people's reputations. Such conduct, in the most literal sense, is a hell-deserving sin, says Barclay. Well, just to highlight the seriousness of, of what Jesus has said, um, Jesus goes on to tell two short stories. He gives us two applications for the principle he's just driven home to us. The first story is said in church. The second story is said in the marketplace. Therefore, Jesus begins, If you're at the temple offering a sacrifice at the altar, and while you're worshiping, you remember that someone has something against you, stop the presses. Stop what you're doing right there. Leave your offering at the altar and go and make things right. Then you can come back and offer your worship. If Jesus were telling this story today, he, he might put it this way. So you're walking in the door to Bible study. Or you're about to pray. Or you're singing songs in church. Or you're about to put that check in the offering plate. And then you remember that someone has something against you. Turn around. Walk out immediately. Go and work it out with them. Be reconciled. Then come and offer your worship. Have any of you had to do this? I have. <laughs> I've had situations where I'd set aside time to pray or to read my Bible. And as I kind of settled in to have a little time with God, God, God brought to mind a relationship that wasn't right. And I had to put down my Bible and pick up the phone and, and make something right. Or I've had to slip out of church to patch up a relationship, which was a lot easier before I was the pastor. You see, God is not interested in hypocritical worship where we do our 
religious acts of, of worship to God, but, but we're not actually living out the intention of what God wants for us. We're not living out his greatest command to love one another, to love our neighbor. The prophet Isaiah puts it this way in the Old Testament in Isaiah 1. Stop bringing meaningless offerings, God says. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Why? Your hands are full of blood. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. God doesn't want our worship in church until we've given him the more important worship of working on our relationships with other people, others of his creatures. So Jesus is reminding of this. It's already in the Old Testament. He's reminding us. He's saying, if we're not right with, with, with a, another person, then we're not right with God. No matter how much money we put in the offering plate or how long we pray or how passionately we sing. Jesus says, just stop. Stop your worship. Give it up. Your worship is not what God wants right now. What God wants is for his children to be reconciled to one another. And then you can come back and we can get on with worship. Now I realize it's not always possible to work out our differences immediately. Sometimes the person's far away. We might have to reach them by phone or send them a text or an email. Other times, they may not be willing to talk to us, to accept our apology or to work things out. So all we're responsible for is our part. I think God understands that, that we might not always be able to follow Jesus' word strictly, literally here. But don't miss the urgency Jesus is trying to convey here. Make this priority one. Jesus is saying. If you're content to live with your relationships in disorder, with resentments in your own heart, with, with people having things against you that they rightfully have against you, then, then you're missing what the heart of God is about. God is all about reconciliation and unity and peace and love. Let me put this another way to try to put it in perspective. Take firefighters, for example. Firefighters have lots of responsibilities. They have to routinely clean and inspect their uh, equipment. They have to educate the public about fire safety. They have to periodically inspect public buildings to make sure they're up to fire codes. And all of these tasks are very important aspects of their job, which require their utmost attention and diligence. But guess what? When there is a fire, they immediately stop whatever else they're doing because now there's something more urgent than any of those other priorities. And Jesus says, for my followers, it's the same. When a relationship is out of sorts and it's partly our fault, everything else needs to stop. When the fire of anger or conflict flares up, Put on the lights and sirens and get to the person and work it out. Because until you've done all you can to make the relationship right, there isn't much else you can do to please God in terms of worship. There may be some of us who've, who've spent weeks or months or years stuck 
in our Christian lives because there's stuff with other people we haven't been willing to deal with. Well, then Jesus tells another little story, this time about being taken to court. Jesus says, suppose you owe another person a sum of money. In Jesus' day, if you couldn't pay a debt you owed, you went to court, they threw you in debtor's prison until you paid. And of course, many people never got out of debtor's prison because it's kind of hard to make the money to pay your debt back when you're locked up. So again, Jesus says, hurry up, deal with it while you still can. Find a way to deal with the debt before it's too late and you can't. Now, is, is Jesus giving us practical legal advice here about what to do if we can't pay our debt? Or is this one of his parables with a figurative meaning? Is he really talking about what to do if we owe someone an apology? Well, it seems to me the principle is the same and that it applies either way. The context here has to do with anger, bitterness, insults, nasty words, our, our brother or sister having something against us. But a financial debt has to do with relationships too. Money has strained a lot of relationships, right? So whatever the debt is, Jesus urges us to hurry and work it out or else we may find ourselves wind up being punished. And even if we aren't punished on earth, eventually we'll face the heavenly court, the heavenly judge, and be held accountable, Jesus says, for all of our debts to others, whether financial and tangible or emotional and relational. So let me ask us, what outstanding debts do you, do I, have in our relationships? Who have we wronged and not made an effort to make things right? Jesus is stressing to us in no uncertain terms, working out our relationships should be our urgent priority. Because the longer we wait, the bigger our problems are going to get. And so don't wait for the other guy to initiate. We can go and take the first step. So in conclusion, will we ask God to show us if there's murder in our own hearts? Will we ask, is there someone in our life whom, or with whom things aren't right? Maybe you have something against them and you just can't bring yourself to forgive them. Or, or maybe you know or suspect they have something against you. Don't wait for them to come to you. You, take the first step. Go to them. Now, I realize sometimes this can be messy and complicated. Sometimes we feel too hurt to forgive. We don't even know where to start, or we've, we've tried and it hasn't worked. If you can't go straight to them immediately, then at least get started by seeking out the help you need for your own heart. Find a counselor. Find someone you respect. And let them help you work through the, the, the steps to healing it will take in you till you can get to the point of freedom where you can begin to forgive, where you can begin to make things right. Other times, maybe you've done your part as, as best you can and, and the other person won't forgive you, they won't reconcile with you. The Apostle Paul very wisely says in Romans twelve eighteen, if it's possible, as much or as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. He realizes we can't be responsible for anyone else's attitudes or decisions. But we can do our part. We can make our best effort. And that's all Jesus is asking us to do. Let's pray.
God, you search us and you know us. You know very well what's in each of our hearts. You grieve for the bitterness some of us carry, which is hurting us, damaging us. You grieve for relationships where people could be brothers and yet they remain enemies, neither of them willing to take the first step to reconcile. God, we need a new heart to live out what Jesus calls us to here. You have promised that you have come to give us that heart. Give us grace to receive it. Change our hearts. Make them new. Help us to live out the vision Jesus is giving for us here. In his name we pray. Amen.